Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 29th, 2022, a couple of days left on the year. And as we try to make sense of the year. I think one thing's for sure, it was a, a high-tech year, for better or worse. Many of the headlines were dominated by technology, particularly by artificial intelligence, by developments in Silicon Valley, by uh, artificial life of one kind or another. One person who's been doing a lot of thoughts about uh, technology and humanity uh, is Jenny Kleeman. She was on the show uh, in the summer, uh, talking about her new book, Sex, Robots, and Vegan Meat, um, Adventures uh, at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex, and Death. So she's been very much uh, having a front row on, on, on many of the high-tech adventures of 2022. Uh, and I'm thrilled that she's joining us again to think a little bit more about what's happened in 2022. She's joining us from old-fashioned, very analog Kentish town in North London. Uh, Jenny, any meta takes on, on 2022? What's happened in terms of uh, technology and particularly humanity? It's a word that you're interested in. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm particularly curious as to your take on the fate of humanity in 2022. Okay. That is a very big question to start with, Andrew. Um, I think 2022 has been a bit of a crazy year in terms of us losing faith, I think, in a, in a lot of things. A lot of things that have been portrayed as, um, as the way of the future have been exposed as the emperor's new clothes in many ways. We're looking, I'm thinking about the collapse of cryptocurrencies, life like FTX. I'm thinking about uh, NFTs, things that at the beginning of the year uh, it seems that uh, if you were smart and bold, uh, you might be involved in by the end of the year, everyone, a lot of people are backing away from like a bad smell. They're things that begin to um, look like a religion. But meanwhile, in the kind of technologies that I looked at in my book, for example, a large part of my book is about um, meat grown in laboratories and uh, meat taken from animal cells. But instead of being grown on the bodies of animals, uh, it is it is you know, grown in a laboratory. They don't like to call it a, a laboratory, but grown in a factory. There have been huge advances in that this year. In fact, the FDA, FDA granted approval uh, for uh, one of one of the companies, Upside Foods, for their um, chicken fillet um, to go on sale, which is a really, really enormous thing. Theoretically, there have been all these obstacles to to this kind of technology happening. Uh, there's the technological obstacles of, of can we do it? Then there's the um, logistical hurdles, regulatory hurdles of will it be allowed? Can it go on sale? Uh, and now there's the hurdle of can you actually scale this up? The final hurdle will be consumer acceptance of people actually going to buy it. So there's been, you know, there's been lots of kind of um, lots of, you know, big crashes, but also quietly things humming on in the background uh, that suggest uh, interesting developments in, in terms of human progress. What do you make of the developments in uh, artificial intelligence, Jenny, both in terms of conversational bot engines and also we, we talked to the Australian AI expert Toby Walsh yesterday about uh, the use of artificial intelligence uh, in war and the beginnings of a robot war, which he sees Ukraine as the first real robot war. Um, 
you you wrote your book on partly on robots. Um, mm. What's happened on the robotic front in 2022? Well, there's kind of two sides. One thing that's very interesting, I mean, my book looks at uh, humanoid robots and the idea of having relationships with, with robots. And when you look at, uh, you know, things like uh, chatbots and ChatGP and things like that, that we've kind of taken for granted that we can play along with all of this and that it will one day be able to replace journalists like me or people who write books, or it can certainly write, you know, basic level high school essays, uh, that kind of thing. I think people, what, what's been interesting for me this year is the extent to which we have accepted that this is going to happen and that we are just going to allow machines to do whatever machines um, can do and that maybe our own education is going to have to change in order that we are useful as human beings because in the future anything that, that can be done by a machine will be done by a machine. So that has interested me. I spent part of this year, um, I, I'm working on my second book and in fact for part of my second book I had, I, I interviewed, um, I looked actually at, at, at warfare, I looked at pilots and the future of manned um, This warfare. is, uh, the book is out in 2024, it's called The Price yeah, of Life. Yes, it's called The Price of Life. And one of the chapters looks at the cost of, of modern warfare and whether or not uh, the aircraft that we are spending lots of money on at the moment will actually be in use in the future because will people ever be able to tolerate um, the deaths of pilots uh, in a world where you can just fly drones everywhere? And all the people I spoke to, you know, admittedly, they were in the aeronautics industry and uh, their pilots themselves, for the most part, they're not going to talk themselves out of a job. But they were very much of the belief that there are real limits to what robots can do and that um, there'll always be a space for human judgment, you know, in terms of differentiating um, civilians from uh, from combatants in a way that machines never can. Um, but I do think that in sort of, in the near future, um, it will be very difficult for governments to explain human casualties in war when you know that you can send a drone up um, to drop a bomb, even if it is a human being making the judgment of where the bomb is, is going to be dropped. It's going to be harder and harder to explain why somebody had to die to deliver a bomb or, or in warfare. So I definitely think um, artificial intelligence is the future of warfare, even though so much money is being spent on uh you know, manned aircraft. Jenny, to what extent are we, so to speak, frogs in boiling water in all this, that nothing seems to change and then one day we'll turn around and we'll all be boiled alive? Um, uh -oh. I mean, every, every year there are new developments on AI, on artificial meat, on robotics, on our relationship with machines. There's no dramatic change and yet everything is continually changing. I think that's a, it's, a, it's a good metaphor to use. I think we are frogs in boiling water, but I think also you have to remember that in parallel to these kinds of technological developments, we have been fed a culture of science fiction that tells us certain stories yeah. about uh, progress and innovation, which we very much internalize and we project onto what we see around us. So um, basic questions aren't asked about different kinds of technology, like the sex robots in my book. Do they actually work? How far away are they from working? The answer is pretty, pretty far away. The idea of a humanoid robot that can walk into your house and deliver itself to you is, is, a, is very, very far off. Um, 
But we, we choose not to ask those questions because there are stories that we want to believe. And whilst we are being beguiled by the hype of these different innovations, we're not asking the very basic questions that we need to ask before some of these things um, arrive. So I think most of us, we are frogs in boiling water, but that's kind of because we choose to be, because we enjoy the story, we enjoy the fantasy of, of what might be around us. Um, and we don't really want to ask very basic questions like what does it does it work? Do we need it? And uh, what are the unintended consequences of having it? Jenny, so far, you and I have danced around the H question, the fate of humanity in 2022. I know it's a rather silly notion. I, who can who, who can say, especially uh, since we're still in 2022. Any significant developments, though, concretely in your take on us thinking about ourselves as humans and uh, in, in 2022, any, any, any uh, events that really somehow reflect uh, parables or metaphors of, of what it means to be human in the 21st century? I feel that this has been a very strange year where we are all kind of blinking into the sunlight after COVID and trying to mm. deal with what we want to persist with in terms of lockdown life what we want to carry through useful things like for example me doing this kind of interview with you wouldn't really have happened before covid the things that we want to keep and the things that we want to discard and i think we're all kind of a bit smarting and bruised at the moment and um you know there have been very interesting things politically that have happened all over the world with for example jair bolsonaro no longer being president in brazil trump being a, a pretty much uh, spent force really in, in America, although I know he's, he's got a lot of, he's still got a lot of, of power and sway, but the idea of him coming back is, is looking more and more remote and the fall of Boris Johnson, that there is an idea that perhaps um, the age of, of the populists may be over for the moment. So um, there, there's a sense of that happening, but I think at the moment people are, are still um, slightly rudderless and confused as, as we come out of, of lockdown and the kind of big ideas that we were working on in, in, in 2019 in terms of human progress, in terms of the environment, in terms of innovation, um, are have, have been lost still to these kind of quite small culture wars that seem to be occupying a lot of our minds. It's interesting you bring up Bolsonaro and Trump. Um, I, I'm no great fan, but they are, shall we say, all too human as political figures and as human beings. Um, the alternative is is kind of technocracy. Do you see any shift towards technocratic thinking, which in its own way is as much a challenge to democracy as the Trumps and Bolsonaro's and Putin's of the world? I think that um, leaders tend to alternate, don't they? That you go for someone who is a kind of big, brash, large personality with populist appeal, and then you go for the, the the technocrat afterwards, the kind of opposite. And need, you know, what you need is a kind of combination of both of someone with, you know, ideals and passion, uh, but who actually has the thought behind it, who isn't just bluster um, and opportunism. Um, and sadly, those kinds of people, I think, are not are not increasingly drawn to politics. Um, uh, yes, I think both they're, they're opposite poles and, uh, you know, e equally dangerous. What can you tell us from... Blighty from the United Kingdom, from North London, Jenny, the, all the stories, and I'm from there, and I've got lots of friends there, and I'm always back. It always seems darker and darker and darker. Mm. Economic decay, the catastrophe of, or the mistake, I think, of most people with knowledge of, uh, of, of, of Brexit. Mm. Uh, does your fate 
in the United Kingdom? What does it tell us about the future? I don't want to be too bleak here, but there is a sense in the United Kingdom that we are in terminal decline because of the self-harm we've done to ourselves, not just with Brexit, but uh, we have a, a government that I think is, is a spent force really after, after 12 years in power. And I think it would be best for everybody if they went away and ha had a think about, they were in opposition for a while and had a chance to think about what they were doing. The catastrophe of, uh, of Liz Truss um, has, has done an enormous amount of damage to the economy and also to our, our, our reputation. We are a, a former superpower. Um, in the United Kingdom, and we have been for a long time. But what we had in the past was a, a reputation for kind of fairness and decency and stability, which we've sort of lost a bit with Brexit. And with we've also lost this idea of British people as being people who cared about honour, I think, with Boris Johnson and his, his in incredible economy with the truth. Um, so um, it's quite depressing. I'm sure you hear this a lot, Andrew, from, from people um, over here in, in the yeah, US. Yeah, I mean, would it, would it be fair to describe the United Kingdom now as a former, former great power? You're, you're post-former great power. I don't quite know what that means or what, or what it feels like. Uh, but your sense of irrelevance and of aimlessness, I mean, uh, America isn't going to save you, is it? There was some no. promise of that after Brexit, but now you're on your own. Well, I think, I think you know, when it comes to science and innovation, Britain isn't an irrelevance. And uh, I think British people hope that that's going to kind of pull us through. But I think there was definitely this sense when the Queen died, where a lot of people, she was, a, you know, a very old lady. And it's not surprising that someone of her age was going to die. But people were really shocked because we all felt in that moment that it really was this end of a, a huge era that she embodied of a kind of um, 20th century Britain when we we stood for a lot of things and we don't really know what we stand for anymore. Um, and I'm hoping this is temporary. I'm hoping we can pull ourselves out of it. I have I love this country and have great faith in, in its people to have um, fantastic ideas and, and innovation. But we are, you know, stuck in this loop at the moment we have you know, it is impossible for people to hire people. There are um, so many jobs advertised. Nobody will take them. Prices are going high. We've got fruit rotting on the trees because no one will, will pick it. It's and, and all of this is for is is just to do with self harm. It's it's the pursuit of a of a of an ideology for the for the sake of what I don't really understand. Jenny, what's the view from London of the rise of China, of the growing, at least economic war between China and the United States and the emergence of China, the Chinese model of, I don't know what you would call it, in, enlightened or, or authoritarian technocracy? Is that something that is relevant for the, the future of the United Kingdom or is it so far away, so distant that it doesn't really matter? I think people here do are concerned about China, but there isn't a lot of engagement with China. There's not a lot of desire to understand uh, what Chinese political thinking might be um, and what the intentions of of uh, the Chinese administration are. There's quite a lot of sinophobia here and assumptions about what must be going on in China. Um, I've spent some time traveling in China and uh, know that, um, you know, it is a system um, that is working for people in China. Uh, there are so many people in China that if it wasn't working for them, uh, you know, there would be another giant revolution. There isn't enough, I think, curiosity about what is keeping China going and holding China together. And I, I wish there was a bit more understanding 
of how China works, and then we would be better equipped to deal with perhaps you know the economic and, and political threat of China on, on the global stage. Jenny, you mentioned your new book will be coming out in 2024, The Price of Life, which you travel around quantifying perhaps in some ways what life is worth. It, it sounds like a neo a project of our neoliberal age. And yet I, I talked to Gary Gerstle, the historian of neoliberalism earlier today, and he seems to think that we're in the post-neoliberal age. What, in your mind, comes after neoliberalism? I wish I knew the answer to that. I don't know what comes after neoliberalism. I do feel that we we are we are certainly in 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 at least the tail end, if not uh, if not the end of the neoliberal age. You know, it is a project that has turned out in a way that nobody might have expected. Although actually, when we look at um, Ukraine and the situation in Ukraine, that we're, we're back into a kind of traditional East-West uh, sort of uh, setup, really, in a perhaps more comfortable territory um, for the UK and, and the US um, than our, our previous enemies who we didn't really understand and couldn't really um, conceive of properly. Um, but now I have I have no idea what what comes next. As I said, from the UK, it, there is a sense of kind of exhaustion and a lack of energy and ideas and direction, and which worries me because anything can step into that vacuum. Well, let's uh, to conclude, Jenny. Let's imagine twenty twenty three. Maybe some of your sex robots could imagine it more accurately than us, but what should we be looking forward to? What should we be fearing, particularly in the context of the H word of humanity and the idea, as we discussed earlier in the conversation, of us being frogs in boiling water and somehow having our humanity squeezed out of us by intelligent technology? I worry about the groupthink that comes from being afraid of being ostracised for saying the wrong thing. Um, if you think about things like, for example, NFTs and cryptocurrency, there are not many people prepared to say, surely this doesn't make sense and this doesn't really work. And there wasn't an, a robust enough critique um, being made, in my view. I mean, other people will, will argue with me on that. But um, I think we are all we are living in a dangerous age of self-censorship. And we need to be able to ask basic, simple questions in order to guard our humanity and not allow ourselves to be those frogs in, in boiling water. Um, we need to have the courage to ask basic questions. And in order to do that, we have to be living in an environment where um, you're not punished for saying things that sound ignorant. One of the things that frightens me a lot, I, I must say, is... Um, the idea that intention doesn't matter, but it, it, it's just impact that matters. And even in the time since I wrote the book, um, there are quite a few things in that book now that I that would be very brave to, to, to write about or to ask about. What like? Um, well, you know, a lot of the stuff uh, I wrote, what part of the book is about um, artificial wombs. I interviewed a trans person about how they would use an artificial womb. They very much wanted to. They use they, them pronouns. Um, but, you know, the, the, I have been criticised subsequently from writing this artificial wombs um, portion of my book uh, from the perspective of a, of a, of a woman. And uh, even though I interviewed a trans person within it, um, of, of not being sufficiently inclusive or not using the right language, even though, um, you know, I did it incredibly earnestly and, and uh, with the best journalistic intention. And I think um, 
there is a lot, people are very afraid of, um, and journalists and columnists and commentators are increasingly afraid of um, being, being caught up in traps that they never intended to get into. Because it used to be the case that if you went into things with, a, with good intentions and were prepared to hold your hand up when you made a mistake, um, that you'd be fine. Whereas now you can have a negative impact that you didn't foresee, and that can be the end of you no matter, no matter what your intention was. So I have always been on the side of the future for humanity is um, earnest inquiry, asking questions, asking the basic questions that um, that you shouldn't be embarrassed about not already knowing the answers to. Um, but I fear that we are living in a world where people are increasingly afraid of asking anything basic uh, in case they um, in case they upset people. Well, I hope I'm not included in that. I love it. No, you're not included in that. But I'm just uh, thinking I mean, that's that... the purpose of my show. I mean, in talking about the, the trans issue, uh, I mean, people have spoken up. J.K. Rowling, for example. Um, I mean, I guess she's been ostracized by some people, but she still remains a very powerful voice. Um, do you feel that... Uh, that the fate of Rowling is... Uh, is, 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 is uh, a message to journalists and writers and thinkers that they shouldn't speak about this issue? I think she's a very particular case because she is a multi-billionaire. She's extremely powerful. Um, and uh, I think that on both, you see, for me, I am interested in the messy grey area in between, not the black and white. Uh, and I'm not interested in taking, I mean, I wrote an article for The Guardian this this year about gay surrogacy in America and, you know, it is a complicated issue. It is a complicated issue ethically, and there isn't actually a, a simple answer to it. But I think we're living in a world where you're being pulled to either side and you have to be brave to step in the, to the minefield at the center of the battlefield because everyone's asking you to, to pick a side all the time. And for me, that's dangerous because what is interesting is the nuance. It's the complicated questions um, that, that aren't clear and simple. But, you know, people want to do play fighting on 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 very demarcated sides, I would say. Jenny, you mentioned um, that you wish in 2022 people had stood up and been a bit more honest about crypto, emperor not having clothes. You brought up the, the, uh, the trans issue, which is uh, an important one to discuss and perhaps upset people with. Any other issues in 2023 that you hope people begin to tell the truth about, even if... Um, it won't always make everybody happy in addition to the, the trans issue. Well, I mean, the trans issue, you, you, I, I, as I said, with that, I, I'm kind of I see both sides of it. Um, I, I think we just need to be able to have a debate which doesn't descend into you're a bigot, you're a pervert, which is where, where we seem to be at the moment with it. I, I, I don't know. Um, I think. I cannot think right now immediately of other things we need to be more honest about. I just think more generally we need to accept um, that people sometimes uh, we need we need to think about whether or not people have intended to uh, offend and cause harm. We should, of course, uh, look out for harmful language. But at the moment, there is such a focus on language rather than intention that I think people are, have have paralyzed themselves. Um, uh, you know, and that goes across a whole different range of things. You know that the situation with race is very different in the UK than it is in um, in the US. But, you know, we have our own kind of issues with class and sensitivities around that. And I just I think that people should 
listen to each other a lot more, think about people's intentions a lot more, and also allow people to speak more uh, without looking for any particular reason to, to silence people and cut them off. The issue of intentionality is a really interesting one because, of course, there will eventually be technology that presumably will be able to um, define intentionality, whatever one says. Uh, but it's curious you say this because on the one hand, we have more and more channels for free expression from Twitter to Substack to shows like this. The fragmentation of mainstream media, which you're very familiar with, you used to be a, a big time mainstream media person. Now you're an independent writer and journalist. And yet the more channels we have, you're suggesting perhaps ironically, the less freedom we have to express ourselves. Is that I fair? think the more the more channels we have, the more people go down silos of I will read this person's Substack or I will watch uh, this channel because they allow free speech on this channel. And that's that's what I'm for, rather than a kind of varied diet of, you know, one of the greatest joys for me as a journalist is that I am often put as a panelist uh, in debates with people who think very differently from me, but are very intelligent and are able to really explain it. I mean, throughout the entire Brexit debate, I was I was um, constantly a, a, a pundit with some really smart people, not, you know, flag waving jing jingoistic people. And that's when your brain really grows, when you can have those discussions. I worry with the fragmentation of media, people are just going to pick um, what they already agree with. And that can't be a good thing. And finally, Jenny, what would you like to see then? Um new websites we always have these new websites promising to present open opinion or do we need less websites and more physical events more panels where people actually can look one another in the eye in a post-covid world more panels where we where people can can look each other in the eye but the other thing i'm asking for which is kind of big and impossible is is a culture shift to more to greater tolerance to greater tolerance of, of different kinds of, of opinions expressed in, in, in different language and not a constant assumption of bad faith. It's kind of like, you know, it's the bad faith Olympics all the time, particularly on Twitter, I'm thinking here. 